Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. Okay, if you've been watching the news lately and... And I'm sure you have, because everybody has Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good shit. Have you seen the Coastie? <laughs> oh, yeah. The fucking guy in a Coast Guard <laughs> that jumped off of a moving boat onto a moving submarine. We're talking about snorkel penis, right? We're yeah. talking about We're snorkel talking about snorkel penis. <laughs> <laughs> runs up a boat, pounds on the hatch, and then the dude inside is, <laughs> opens the hatch. <laughs> like... Well, well, that's it. I, I, I mean, that's I was just in me. a moving submarine. I, I guess it's time to get out. And then the motherfucker hauls him out of the boat. Hauls him out. And like, I, I get that though, because like, if I have to run up your drug submarine yeah. in a storm and there's waves crashing all over, I am bringing an ass whooping with me. <laughs> and see, here's the funny thing about that whole thing. I'm great, great boat navy. We love to make fun of the coast guard. You, you I watched that video and I went. Oh shit, shit. man! <laughs> there was no way uh, that that guy that guy could cross my quarter deck anytime. Oh, you put a wrench in the <laughs> that dynamics. Guy had some big dick energy, dude. He but you know who did not have big dick energy? Another another local, uh, another uh, recent zeitgeist, the Bagel Man. Oh yeah, <laughs> the Bagel Man. Because we were talking about big dick energy the other day, and I was thinking yeah. about little dick energy, and then we have the Bagel Man. Yeah. <laughs> I want the Coast Guard guy to like haul the bagel man out of his car. Do you think he drives like a little car? The only guy, the only thing I can think of with Bagel Man was, say, "You want to go outside?" My answer would be, "Why? You got a stool out there? <laughs> Some sort of plinth you can stand on?" <laughs> the guy that that dropped a beating on him, that was the that was the right response to that. Like, oh, yeah. he told him oh, to shut the hell up, and then he said, "You know, we're gonna we'll fight. We're gonna fight." So he ended him. Which is exactly what you do. Like, incel music is playing slowly in the background. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only other zeitgeist was the one that I I mentioned to you at the same time you were talking about that earlier this week, which was do not flush your drugs down the toilet because in Florida we're going to oh, have yeah. meth, meth gators. Meth gators. I'm here for it. I'm here I, for it. I want to see the meth, meth gators. That could solve a lot of problems. Well, hold on, hold on. That hold could on. be a whole hold new on, Debbie no. Gibson genre. Hold on. Aren't the meth gators the, the mascot for Florida International University? Ah, uh, they might be. I think the meth gators have been in Florida for I, quite some time. It's really <laughs> they, they, they it's like, well, like FAU. They, yeah. did, they did have that fight with Miami that Donna Shalala broke up here about... Five, oh, ten yeah. years Whenever the, the one guy came back on crutches, like yep. the fight lasted so long that he was able to get medical attention and return to the yep, melee. Exactly. Yep, that exactly. was the one. So uh, now that we uh, for you. Now that we've covered uh, yeah. big dick energy. Now that you're now that you're caught <laughs> up with the latest zeitgeist. And, and little dick en- <laughs> energy leads us into And Meth Gators, welcome back <laughs> to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everyone. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And we are joined by our good friend Michael Arnett. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome to the kitchen, Padre. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to this one, man. I, I uh, first off I'd like to say apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. I have been Sick as a damn dog. I had a throat infection. I was 
speaking at best with a horse whisper for the last couple weeks, really. I've been in bad shape. I'm not going to ask you where that came from. Well, I I don't know where it came from. I just know that this is the first day in a long time I haven't sounded like I've been gargling with tribal attacks. We were just going to have him tap out the whole episode in Morse code on the the microphone, but then that would alienate everyone. That would be a long episode, too. We did one one podcast where I talked and Rob did the rest in American Sign Language. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it didn't translate. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. work well on radio. No, doesn't doesn't do doesn't go great with an audio medium. Turns no. out. Uh, well, you know, we, we again, got to have yeah. another plan for next time. But so we're here. We uh, we wanted to do get this episode out a couple weeks ago because we wanted to do it around the Fourth of July because the episode today is about none other than John Paul. Jones. Now, John Paul Jones was not only one of the founding fathers of the U.S. Navy. He was also the bass player for Led Zeppelin. He was. And he was one of the heroes of the American Revolution. But he was also a man who was constantly on the run from both his own personal demons and the consequences of his actions. And someone whose nature didn't exactly lead to him making friends and influencing people. He was the naval bagel man. He was. He was naval he bagel man. short man syndrome. <laughs> well, the, the, first, the first source that I actually looked up uh, when we got into this episode was the fact that... Um, they, they specifically said he had a Napoleon complex. <laughs> he did. I mean, it, right he there, was, like in the he first was paragraph. He shorter than Napoleon. He was, he was what, 5'3", five, 5'4"? Five, five, I had him was, was, they, said he, they said he was at 5'6", which means five, he's five, probably four. shorter. Yeah. 5'6", yeah. was what I, everything I read. That's like when somebody says that they're 5'11", they're lying to you. Yeah. Because they're 5'9". Mm-hmm. If, if you're really 5'11", you're just going to say you're 6'6". Six foot. Yeah. Nobody in the world is actually you're just gonna You're just going to tick that meter over. <laughs> yeah. You're 5'9", you're maybe 5'10". Yeah. So uh, we decided we wanted to have Mike on for this episode because Mike's not only a friend of the show and uh, the padre of our merry band of renegades, uh, he's also a fellow student of history like us, and he's also a veteran of the U.S. Navy. So, Mike, I, if you'd like to take a moment to just kind of talk about you know, your story with the Navy and why John Paul Jones is an interesting figure to you before we really get into this. Well, let's have you talk about John Paul Jones before you did the research for this. Yeah. So how, and then okay. we'll, we'll readdress right. this at the end. Well, one of the things that they do in the Navy, when you come into boot camp, the first three days, you actually don't know which end is up. But the first thing that they do is they give you instruction, basically because they're not allowed to beat the shit out of you, mm-hmm. until you've been through all your physicals and they make sure that you're not going to die. So the first week is nothing but instruction. And one of the first lessons they teach you, they teach you is naval history. And they start from the beginning. And instilling that sense of tradition and right. pride. Exactly, because tradition and pride is a big part of the naval service. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because we still do the day, we, we still do 240 some years later, we still do the same things the same way that they did. The machinery has advanced, the ships have advanced. It's still the same stuff. But a lot of the lexicon is still the same. Oh, absolutely. Too. Well, I mean, we not, still hit the head. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that... Uh, the brig, all yeah, of that. The, yeah. the head, the brig, the quarterdeck. You still ca- cross the quarterdeck to come on. You still salute the ensign. Mm-hmm. Um, but they... Uh, one of the things that they do is they talk about the greatness of John Paul Jones. You never hear about Captain Barry, believe it or not. Yeah. John Paul Jones is the man's man of the United States Naval Service. Always has been. And they explain to you that the don't tread on me flag, the one that Chris Pratt's getting all kind of crap for, that was the first ensign of the United States Navy. And it was that way because of John Paul Jones. It's a, it, it's basically a 
what you would know as a uh, a colonial times uh, regular United States flag yeah. with a rattlesnake that says "Don't tread on me." Yeah, it's, it's different. It's not it's, the yellow "Don't tread on me" Gadsden flag no, that you see yeah, so much right. nowadays. No, it's it, it's over the backdrop of yeah. a. It's got a blue field. It's got the the red and white stripes, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I actually, he wanted I to use. <laughs> I have one. It's in the club. Yeah. And that's what, in fact, the, the one of the, the the Naval Academy, the midshipmen last year, their gloves for their wide receivers, when you held the gloves up, it actually made that flag. The, the Navy in the Army, like for the Army Navy game, it's my favorite thing in the world. I've been there, it is incredible. But like, they always wear those super cool alternate uniforms. It's the only time that alternate uniforms have ever looked mm-hmm. cool in the history of sports. Yeah. Absolutely. Except for the turn the clock forward night. <laughs> <laughs> like the future night for a whole baseball game when Ken Griffey Jr. just had a giant fake Ken Griffey Jr. tattoo and he wore yeah. his hat backwards. Oh, it was the best. Oh, my God. It's fantastic. Uh, well, the, they, they instilled that from day one, particularly by John Paul Jones and, you know, especially the flag. And one of the things that's funny is I'm not the only – I'm actually fourth generation – Naval service. My son is in the Navy, and before we did the, before I even heard about us doing this podcast, my son and I love to talk naval history. And your son Bobby, have, Bobby, what's yeah, up? Bobby. Hope you and your new wife are doing well. They'll be up here next week. Oh, cool! So, oh, excellent. So we'll have to get with them. Um, anyway, we all we have this long running argument about the top five sailors of all time, and when it comes to the top three, he and I. We're having this argument. We agree on number one. We agree on number three. Number one, Lord Nelson. If you're a sailor at all, Lord Nelson should be number one. Mm -hmm. Number three, Chester Nimitz. Number two, I had Admiral Farragut because my argument was that he had, that he was brown water Navy and blue water Navy. My son challenged me on it and said, John Paul Jones is number two because he was the only man that took the war to the British. Mm. And what that did was, before I started doing show prep for this show, I actually started researching. And I'm amazed at what I found. So, I mean, it's... I learned a lot of things working on this episode that I didn't know about him. Well, I think that's... I knew the... This is what the Navy gives you. This is our tradition. This guy's a badass sailor, and we're gonna, you know, yeah, we're gonna rally around him. So that's where that that's where I started this journey. Well, and I think it's part of the the, the by being the first captain in the in the U.S. Navy, Continental Navy, to really take the fight to the enemy to operate in his waters. That gives him a certain kind of action hero quality. There's a swashbuckling quality to John, the story of John Paul Jones. The, the story of John Paul Jones that most people know and the most people hear is, and that, that sort of gives him like a, almost like a, like a Thomas Cochran kind of right. kind of feel to him. And I think that's part of the reason why he resonates as, as the sort of figure that he does. Well, and one of the things that I found funny in the research is that uh, until, he, until he took command of the Ranger... He was working around the coast as a privateer, mm-hmm. and in his time with the uh, uh, the John of Liverpool, I believe it was, and the Alfred, people don't realize this. We call him a privateer because we won the war. He was a pirate. Pirate to the British. And he, he was a le- legitimately, according yeah. to maritime law, he was a pirate. Because he was not granted with an he actual letter had, of mark. He had a letter of mark from the Continental oh, Congress. Congress. 
but the Continental Congress was not a recognized body. If I, if I went out to North Dakota and I got a letter of mark from the Lakota Sioux and I took over the Maersk, Alabama, I would be hanged as a pirate. <laughs> I'm not, I would not be granted privateer status. If you do that, I will respect the shit out of you. Yeah, me too. It would be pretty cool. <laughs> I respect it would the be. shit out of you. Now well, we just now we just got to find somebody that's Lakota. Well, we're gonna well we're and gonna keep we it moving forward because you, you mentioned the Marist Alabama and look at me. Yeah. I'm the captain now. <laughs> uh, we're gonna move this podcast forward. Uh, we're gonna get to let's let's talk about our sources for a minute. Now I had two primary literary sources I used. Now we all used I think different sources for this, which yes, absolutely. which I right. I kind of like. Now my two that I used were uh, two books: John Paul Jones, America's First Sea Warrior. Oh, never mind. By um, Rear Admiral <laughs> Joseph Callow. Never mind. Okay, we almost used all the same. Books. Um, <laughs> used all different ones. Now my other primary source was a book called If by Sea by uh, George Dowen. And uh, if you want the full story of the the, the Continental Navy and the in the American Revolution, read this book. It's an incredible book. It's fantastic. He has that. He has a book called 1812 about the U.S. Navy and the War of 1812. Really, really good stuff. Um, and then, of course, we found a variety of other uh, writings, articles, and essays courtesy of the Internet. It's 2019. We kind of can't do this without using the Internet. So um, any other sources you guys would like to mention? Just Wikipedia. <laughs> As I said, it's 2019. Now, uh, I actually went through a lot of the naval archives, mm-hmm. uh, which are all accessible. You can just yeah, go online, find them, Google, go through all of them. Yeah, that's where I pulled up a lot of the articles that I yeah, found. tremendous amount. It, they're unbelievably detailed, which yeah. we don't always get in all of our stuff, especially from this period. But I mean, it's and this kind of starts a little later in his career. Mm-hmm. But it, the documentation is fantastic. So, gentlemen, should we just? Um, Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, my my main source was actually uh, a book called John Paul Jones, Hero and Father of the United States Navy by a man named Evan Thomas. Mm-hmm. And if you want a precursor to that, I would actually suggest looking up Evan Thomas. He gives a very good book talk at Annapolis um, on C-SPAN. So that's, cool. that's what that's actually where I got turned on. And the you books. can find that on like YouTube or? Uh, yes, you can find it okay. on YouTube. Just cool. type in Evan Thomas. And it'll come up. Jen, should we get rolling with the story Absolutely. of John Paul Jones? Let's, let's get in. I have not oh, yet right. begun to record. Oh, yes. Here we go. So, John Paul Jr. was born on July 6, 1747, the fourth of seven children of John Paul Sr. and Jeannie McDuff on the estate of Arbigland in Kirkbean on the Solway Forth in Scotland's southwest coast. Now, although his father was the head gardener of a palatial estate, John would have spent his childhood on the coast in an environment surrounded by sailors and ships sailing into and out of the Irish Sea into many nearby small ports. And he spent his childhood as part of a society where trade and shipping were growing day by day because we're in a period where Britain's empire is expanding very, very quickly. Uh, It's also worth pointing out that in the middle of the 18th century, maritime shipping and fishing were so ingrained in Scottish society that 50% of the personnel of the uh, the British East India Company were Scots. Uh, so after a traditional primary education at the local Presbyterian parish school and what appears to be a fairly unremarkable childhood, the next great step of John's life began in 1761 when at the age of 13, when most boys would go into a trade to begin their apprenticeships, instead of taking up the family business of groundskeeping and gardening, JP was apprenticed to John Younger, master of the trading brig Friendship. Now this is a bold move considering how much life as a merchant sailor could absolutely suck in the 18th century. But, and one thing that I have noticed that kind of comes up through 
it follows him through his career. Mm-hmm. It was the only way for the son of a gardener to progress through society. Yeah, there was it like the being a merchant sailor was pretty much the only way mm-hmm. for you to go vertical in this caste system. Yeah, I mean that's we had a whole podcast yeah. about a very large Belgian man. Oh yes, <laughs> and, now, and, now. And, and one of the things that's interesting about that, leading off of what you're talking about, is that it's thought that. Uh, John Paul at the time was very resentful, mm-hmm. uh, particularly of aristocracy, because he felt less than very early in his life, and that led to a lot of what we're going to see coming up. Yeah, we're going to see some interesting exploits a few decades quite later. Quite a bit by aristocracy. Yeah. Like, even as an adult. Yeah, here's the thing, though. He didn't grow up super poor. I mean, no. he would have been essentially the middle class. Right. So he didn't grow up dirt poor, but it was kind of intended that he would go into a trade. He wouldn't be like a landless laborer or anything like that, but it's like, okay, you pick up a trade, you do well for yourself, you provide for your family. That's about the best you can expect. About the best you can expect. Uh, And instead of... uh, So yeah, he decides to uh, become a merchant sailor, uh, which could be tough. Wages tend to be lower than the Navy. Uh, The food wasn't as good, as plentiful, or even guaranteed. You got what the captain and the people who own the shipping company or the ship wanted to give you. And it's for profit. Yeah. So the less money they spend on your food, yeah. there's the also, better it is for the bottom line. There's there, are also, actually, there are actually two different sides to that coin. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that was because of the nature, particularly in the, hey, in the Navy, we call it in the days of wooden ships and iron men. Um, they... It was it was a misnomer that they were particularly not well fed, yeah. Be, because of two different issues. First off, not feeding the crew was bad for morale. Yeah. And when you're a thousand miles in the middle of the Atlantic, you don't want the crew pissed off. Yeah. The second thing is is the nature of sailing work in the in the age of sail was very difficult work. It would not it would not have behooved. The captain or the men profiting the ship to have sailors that yeah. were in no condition to work. Well, yeah. So there was well, a certain like the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy rations right. in, in this in this period equal they they said about thirty five hundred to four thousand calories a day. Right, and there was a so there. Like I said, there are two schools of thought on it. Mm-hmm. The fact was is it would have been better to be a sailor at the time. Yeah. Than to be a mercenary soldier, mm-hmm. or you know, even in the wrong serfdom, yeah. you know, in the in the wrong area, you might not eat. Yeah. Now, however, you know, if you were in the Navy, course, course. now, however, you if you were, were, gonna, were gonna, you were going to eat, you know, if you're in the Navy, though, your your rations, your medical care, all of that is ingrained in Admiralty law and enforced. Now, if you're a merchant sailor, none of that's actually guaranteed. Right. No, but again, it's one of those situations yeah. where it did not pay the merchanteer. To, to mistreat the sailors, to skimp on there, there, yeah. there was there was a point. Again, like I said, I don't know for sure because I've I've heard both schools of thought. Yeah. So the friendship would made uh, made her trade on the triangle route, taking textiles and manufactured goods from Britain to the Caribbean, trading them for rum and sugar, taking those goods to the American colonies to be exchanged for cotton, tobacco, or timber to be taken back to Britain, and then repeating the whole process ad nauseum. It was working these routes that uh, JP learned the basis of seamanship and tricks of the trade like navigation, helmsmanship, and the repair and upkeep of all parts of a vessel. Now, three years into a seven-year apprenticeship, however, the friendship was sold and John Paul was released from his obligation. He spent the next several years aboard a pair of slave transports, which he called an abominable trade in later letters. The Blackbirds were horrible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
as yeah, the I mean, yeah. He just quits. It's so like everything about it's so horrible, and, it, and apparently he quits on principle. Yeah, he's finally had enough. Um, and yes, yeah, so we spent uh, several years as the third mate of a vessel called the King George out of Whitehaven, and a vessel called and as the first mate of a vessel called the Two Friends out of Kingston, Jamaica. Now he decided, he, as you mentioned, that he quits, and it's in 1768 on a voyage home to the Solway Firth as a passenger aboard the brig John. The I JP, love that the boat's name is John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that John, those who call me John. <laughs> and and this is where John Paul gets his first taste of command. Now during this journey from the Caribbean, both the captain and the ship's only other officer died of yellow fever, and the newly 21-year-old John Paul takes command of the vessel. Takes charge, navigates her safely to her destination. It's because he was the only one on the ship that knew, knew how to how navigate. To do it. Yeah. yeah. So he forest gumps his way into essentially a captaincy. Yeah. And uh, as a result of saving the vessel and her cargo, I was sailing. <laughs> the, the owners of the John offer her captaincy to John Paul. Uh, so over the next couple of years, his personality and his nature as a captain begin to show through. And there would be a series of incidents that would uh, lead him to the service of the American colonies. Now, he was short in stature, between 5'3 and 5'5. He was apparently very strong. He was neat in his dress. He was poised in social situations. And he was apparently very good with women. Now, at the same time, while at sea, he gained a reputation for being a hard-edged captain, short and gruff with his men, and something of a tyrant aboard ship, although he was respected by his crew for his seamanship, but not beloved by any stretch. The first incident that would color J.P.'s story came in early 1770, after the John unloaded cargo in Tobago, when he had the ship's carpenter, Mungo Maxwell, which is a name I just love. It's so Mungo great. Maxwell. Mungo. I thought it was a nickname. Nope. No. Nope. He had Mungo Maxwell severely flogged for insubordination. Now, Maxwell appears to have survived the flogging and left the crew of the John to return to Britain, but he died en route after taking a serious downturn despite beginning the voyage in good health. Now, Maxwell's family was from the same part of Scotland as John Paul's and soon accused the captain of cruel and unusual punishment leading to Maxwell's death. So, Rob, here's a, I got a, I, I got a question mm-hmm. because you're a Scot. Um, I, I was reading I was reading about Scottish aristocracy. Yeah. I need a definition here. Is Scottish aristocracy the guy with the most sheep or the one with the cutest sheep? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it depends. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I just know that if you are the highest noble in Scotland, you have the biggest herd of the cutest sheep, biggest flock of the cutest ah, sheep. Okay. Ah. That's how I mean, that works. You, 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 you know, I, I just imagine. You know, there's a group of black and tans. They they've got a herd of sheep coming up, and they're trying to find the Highlanders. And here's one doing. Hey, hey, hey Captain, are you sure this is going to work? <laughs> This is how we got William Wallace. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, this also led to the invention of the Wellington boot. It wasn't a fashion choice after the Duke of Wellington. It was actually just having the boots there so you could stick the back legs in the leg of the boots. (laughs) And now you're good to go. (laughs) You're all set. All right, so Mungo Maxwell is... So Mungo Maxwell dies from the flogging. John Paul's actually jailed for a short time in the port town of Kirkubright until a court cleared him of any wrongdoing. In 1772, he advanced his career by being appointed captain of the much larger trading vessel Betsy, and his profits exploded, but it all ends up being for naught, as in January of 1773, after departing Plymouth for the West Indies, the Betsy gets stuck after having a serious structural problem that forces it to dock in the Irish port of Cork for extensive repairs. So it's delayed for months, 
and he has a near-mutinous crew on his hands, and things come to a head when the vessel finally reaches Tobago. Uh, John Paul claimed that an altercation broke out with a crew member named Blackton over back wages, and he was attacked and forced to run the man through with his sword to defend himself. I need to point out, this is from the claim that John Paul made, not necessarily what was the true story. Yeah. And it's given by several historians yeah. that I had, I had read and listened to that that claim was pretty nefarious by other accounts. Mm-hmm. Now, I, was, I wasn't able to actually gather up any other accounts of what had happened, but the open secret, the understanding was that it wasn't how yeah. Yeah. Jean-Paul it looked, put it. it looked Clear, clearly, even he didn't give that much credence to his story because he just beats feet. He resigns his command, and he takes a ship to the American colonies, ending up after a series of short voyages in Virginia. Uh, he wrote in a 1779 letter to Benjamin Franklin, quote, It was the advice of my friends, Governor Young among many others, that the, the, when the great misfortune of my life happened, that I should retire incognito to the continent of America and remain there until an admiralty co- commission should arrive on the island. And going on later in the letter to claim that he was still intending to return to the island to clear his name in an admiralty court when the American Revolution broke out 18 months later. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. So once in America... So he gets there, he changes his fucking name. Oh, we're getting to that. <laughs> hey, that's the best part. Yeah. That he is was, the you know, best part. He was part. that by about five seconds. So once he's in America, John Paul begins referring to himself as John Jones for quite some time. <laughs> and eventually just mixes both of those names, becoming the three-part name we now know him by. He was just so impossibly innocent that he's like, Oh, uh, I'm just going through a phase. It was like yeah. Prince. No, no, that no, happened. Just the it was totally justified. What's your name? I have no name. And, and see, this—the thing I love about it—and I wish we. At some at times, I wish we lived in a world like this. This is the nomenclature equivalent of putting on the Groucho Marx glasses. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I didn't you know, it. Yeah. My name is John Paul. John Paul. John Paul. John Paul. I'm going to go by John. John. No. I know. John Paul Jones. Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody will know me then. (laughs) So now John Paul Jones set about trying to make a new life for himself in America, spending time in Virginia, North Carolina, Philadelphia, and he ends up making some pretty influential friends, especially Joseph Hughes, a wealthy North Carolina merchant who would not only become a member of the Continental Congress, but also a member of its naval committee and the first civilian commissioner of the Continental Navy, which would prove later on to be a pretty useful connection. Uh, Jones also tried his hand at finding a wife and fell in love with a woman named Dorothea Dandridge. Uh, this is fucked up. <laughs> daughter of a wealthy Virginia planter. It's, you want to take this over, yeah, Chris? Yeah, so it was uh, Patrick Henry. Yeah. It was his second wife. Yeah. <laughs> you guys hear about Sarah? First wife of 18 years? Had six kids? She was showing signs of mental instability. Mm-hmm. He locked her in a fucking basement for four years and she died. Yep. Is that what happened to Kyle? <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about Kyle. <laughs> Shit. You guys have to feed him. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with these folks and Renegades. Somebody get Kyle! <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, it didn't pan out. Uh, Dorothea Dandridge ends up marrying revolution, uh, revolution notable Patrick Henry, and it appears that that put the idea of marriage out of John uh, John Paul Jones's mind for good. So again, a, a, a rich guy 
steals his girl. Yeah. And now he's pissed off again. So a wealthy family sues him because he beat their kid, and then the kid got yellow fever, and that's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> now some some fuck boy yeah. <laughs> takes his girl. So 18th century fuck boy. Puts his, so puts his mind... So it puts his mind out of marriage, but it doesn't slow down his desire for dalliances and affairs because he ends up having plenty of those, which will get him in some trouble later, as we will get to. Now, Jones also spent a lot of his time in America trying to make the shift to landowner and gentleman planter. And even though he had accrued pretty significant assets, they were all tied up in the Betsy, which he just ran the fuck away from. All of his money's tied up in the ship, which is in Tobago. He can't get to it, so he's shit out of luck. He does catch a lucky break. Um, so until the May of 1775, Jones bopped around the colonies trying to figure out what to do next when fate intervened and rising tensions with England came to a head as fighting broke out at Lexington and Concord. Now, we could do a dozen episodes on of worth of material on how the American Revolution got started and how everything came to pass. So I'm going to do my best to make a very long story very short. So at the outbreak of violence in King Massachusetts... King George pissed us off. Mike did a better job than I did. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, violence breaks out in Massachusetts. The Continental Congress convened in June of 1775 to set about actually putting together military forces to fight this rebellion. And part of that process included outfitting a navy. Now, the Continental Navy started very, very small, with Congress voting in October to outfit two schooners to hunt British merchant shipping. And things grew slowly from there. Now, the leaders of the revolution knew they were going to have a David versus Goliath situation on their hands. They would never be able to hope to match the Royal Navy for power or numbers. Now, the Royal Navy, in October of 1775, had 108 ships of the line. The Continental Navy had none. The Royal Navy, at this time, had 176 frigates. The Continental Navy, none. The Royal Navy had over 340 smaller brigs, sloops, schooners, and armed transports. The Continental Navy had two. So, Got them right where we want them, fellas. It's, going a little, it's getting a little unmatched. So you're saying there's a chance. So <laughs> That's, that's kind of how, like, uh, yeah. what was it, the, the last Sky War, the last Jedi? That's kind of how it yeah. ends. Yeah. <laughs> Just like eight yeah. people. Well, no, you remember, you remember that? Now it's showtime, guys. Yeah, <laughs> no, you, remember, you remember when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008? Oh. <laughs> Vladimir has 10,000 tanks. You have three. Why would you start a war? Oh, God. So... Uh, knowing that this war on the water was going to be, at best, asymmetrical, the American naval strategy essentially broke down to three components. A. Interdicting British supplies to their troops and capturing material for the Continental Army's use. B. Projecting limited naval power against British territories outside of the American continent for the sake of economic and psychological impact. And C. Selectively establishing naval superiority in limited short-term situations. Now, as the initial months of the conflict played out, more vessels were slowly procured, either through the acquisition of ships from the multiple smaller state navies, which is a whole different thing, or uh, the purchase of merchant vessels and the commissioning of privateers. Uh, uh, a list of the first commissioned officers of the Continental Navy is published by the Naval Committee, and on it is 28-year-old First Lieutenant John Paul Jones. His first assignment is to oversee the outfitting of the 24-gun frigate Alfred in Philadelphia, and he went after the assignment with gusto, whether through revolutionary zeal or just relief to be back in the maritime sphere. And on December 3rd, 1775, he is the first person to raise an American flag on board a Navy ship, the ensign that you mentioned earlier, Mike. Exactly. Don't, don't tread on me. Yep. 
January 4th, 1776, the Alfred, in company with seven other smaller Continental Navy ships, set sail down the Delaware River for the Navy's first mission abroad to raid the British store bases at Nassau in the Bahamas. Now, as his captain, Jones had the haughty New Englander, uh, New Englander Dudley Saltonstall, which just... That's another name makes fun name. Like so good. <laughs> Who Jones did not get along with because both men had a prickly nature and Saltonstall had been awarded the position not through experience and ability, but through family connections. However, the fleet's commander, Commodore Isaac Hopkins, and Jones got along swimmingly and that's going to help Jones' career further down the road. Isn't that like the only guy in his career? <clears throat> Pretty much. That... He actually got along. Got with. along with. As far yeah. as naval officers All he did go, was just yeah. fire off angry letters. Like, could you imagine what John Paul Jones's Yelp would look like? It would just be a collection. <laughs> oh of no, just John Paul Jones reviews. always wants to speak with the manager. Yeah, he's he the, always wants. He to speak was branded to the manager. a malcontent very, very early, mm-hmm. and everybody agreed with it. In the service industry, he ate a lot of pubic hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean gentleman's parsley? Oh no. <laughs> Remember to tip your bartenders. So arriving in Nassau, the squadron didn't find the vast stores of gunpowder that they were searching for, but they did capture 103 pieces of artillery and over 11,000 cannonballs, along with thousands of muskets, blankets, cartridge cases, other stores, and a lot of influential prisoners. The success of the raid, however, was tempered when the ships encountered the single 24-gun Royal Navy ship HMS Glasgow and attempted to take her. The Glasgow ran circles around the Continental Fleet, Managed to outmaneuver the squadron, made her escape, and severely damaged the Alfred and two other vessels in the process. So this this got Benny Hill very quickly. So the raid it was a mixed success, but it did provide Jones with valuable naval combat experience. Jones ends up shortlisted as commander for one of 13 new frigates that Congress had ordered. Spoiler alert, that didn't pan out. Uh, in the meantime, in May of 1776, he's given command of the 12-gun sloop Providence. And on August 21st, 1776, he set sail with his crew of 70 men and another smaller brig to raid the fishing port of Canso in Nova Scotia. He captures or destroys 15 fishing and merchant vessels, burns a whole bunch of warehouses and shore facilities, and he does it all without spilling a single drop of British or American blood in what becomes the first unparalleled success of the Continental Navy. You know, as we're sitting here talking about this and knowing what we're coming up on, there was a pyromaniac. Mm-hmm. I think he kind of got off on it. He yeah. let a lot of shit on fire in his career. Yeah. yeah, and I think he just enjoyed it. Like whereas, like the William he, Sherman thing was—you don't think he was like the Beavis guy? Like, that I kind of—he just liked burning shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. he just—he wanted to see things on fire. He just enjoyed it. Well, because he also knew the psychological impact it could have too. So upon his return to uh, to the colonies, Jones is given command of the Alfred now. And after outfitting her, he sets out on another raiding cruise. He raids Canso again and takes six more vessels. He, he raids. Tendency to go back to places. Yeah, <laughs> he did. Uh, he raided and burned several other small coastal settlements, and he set about freeing 300 American prisoners from the coal mines of Sydney, Nova Scotia, and take several British merchantmen on his ver- on his journey to and from that the destination of the raids. Now Jones, as usual, once he was back on shore, began to clash with the powers that be over differences in tactical thinking, firing off a lot of angry letters, and his place on the list of seniority of Continental Navy captains. This was a particular sticking point for him, because he was apparently 18th on a list of 24, and vehemently believed, by virtue of his deeds and experiences, he should be at least 4th, maybe 5th at worst. And he was demoted from frigate command. 
He ends up being given command of the 18-gun sloop of war USS Ranger and is told to sail to French waters to assist the American cause however possible. This is like them sending away uh, Gregor McGregor out of Very the British Army. Yeah. He just, just going, wanted to get rid of it. Just go away. Yeah. So you know how you could really help the American Revolution? France. Yeah. <laughs> By not being here. Yeah. This, the, the only guy that went to France yeah. and really did good things for the American Revolution was Benjamin Franklin. They just kicked John Paul Jones out. Yeah. This would be the modern day equivalent of saying, okay, you keep yeah. writing letters to NASA. We're going to let you lead the expedition to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> you go. You start right now. Yeah. <laughs> so he's... Well, you know, you know that satellite that they're trying to send close to the sun. Yeah, that's yeah. the one they put. Yeah, on. that's the He's one they're going to ride that thing like fucking <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Strange. Like the guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens. <laughs> so John Paul Jones does his best to get in with Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, Arthur Lee, all these figure, these uh, revolutionary figures in France, and he's promised command of Landian, a uh, powerful vessel being constructed in Amsterdam for the Continental Navy, but the British flex their political muscles and end up getting the Dutch to sell the, the vessel to, to the French because the French hadn't technically aligned themselves with the Americans yet. They were doing it kind of tacitly. And it was within a week, though, money. wasn't it? It was within a couple months. It yeah. wasn't a long yeah. time at all. So, once again, without frigate command, Jones is again stranded landside, but he uses that time to uh, actually develop a pretty tight friendship with Benjamin Franklin. Again, one of the only few people that he kind of got along with. And, he, and to be fair, as a tactician, he was yeah. actually planning what he was going to do once he yes. got a hold of a boat. And he began yeah, to he, work. He did have a game plan. He wasn't just yeah. like, kind of fucking And he kind of here. took over uh, efforts supervising uh, French dockyards, building ships for the Continental Navy. Right. So February 6, 1778, France signs the Treaty of Alliance, formally recognizing the independence of the American colonies, and joins them in a state of war against England. Now finally able to get his ship fully outfitted and upgunned in French ports, Jones and the Rangers set sail from Brest in April 1778 on a raiding cruise. Stop it. Shut up. Shut up. No, I'm not having it. Now now you got two of us. <laughs> two breasts. <laughs> You're welcome, gentlemen. <laughs> so Jones ends up on this raiding cruise in English waters, which is something the Continental Navy hadn't done yet. And he takes several prizes in the Irish Sea, but he resolves to use his ship's large crew, speed, and heavy armament to do something that had not yet been attempted, raiding an English port and taking on an English warship in English waters. If I recall, it hadn't been attempted for like a thousand years, right? It's been a long time. Yeah, not was, since the Armada. Yeah, not really. Yeah, they had five, they had four or five hundred years. It, yeah. it had been several hundred years. I mean, certainly not with a, anybody. Certainly not with a brand new fucking navy. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Dutch raid on the Medway in 1660s. Okay. Seven that, and stuff that's, like that. Uh, that's what I was But thinking. not a brand new navy. <laughs> That was pretty, that's pretty ballsy. We're going to do it with a tugboat. Yeah. <laughs> so that the port he was talking about happened to be Whitehaven uh, on England's northwest coast, where Jones, Jones' maritime career had actually begun. But before he could try to raid Whitehaven, Jones learned on, in April that the 14-gun HMS Drake was anchored off of Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. Originally intending to attack the Drake in broad daylight, Jones' crew were, quote, unwilling to undertake it, according to the diary of the Ranger's surgeon, uh, which, by the way, this was omitted in the official report. 
and an attempt to, uh, to attack was made at night, but on that occasion, the sailor responsible for dropping the anchor to halt the ranger beside Drake misjudged the timing because he was shit-faced drunk. Yeah, they were fucked up. Yeah, and uh, he, could, he lost the initiative, and he's unable to bring his guns to bear. He's afraid that the Drake can just turn on him and just rake his ass before he can get his guns to bear, and then he then has the disadvantage. So Drake, or so Jones just cuts his anchor cable and books it. Well, there if I is recall, no oh, okay. official record from the Drake that they knew this happened. He fucked up so perfectly yeah. that they never even knew. <laughs> oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> shit almost crashed in, yeah. in the middle of the night. The Watchmen never even bothered. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought about this until until just now because I, I, I recall a story from what I was reading. The, the, the crew of the Ranger, the Ranger had been built in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And as far as the it, when when John Paul Jones was given command, he had to take the crew that had been given to him, and they were and they were they New were Hampshire some, boys, and all back to New England. All they wanted to do was go back to New England, and all they wanted to do while they were out there was beat up merchant ships and get prize money. They yeah. weren't. They they, they didn't had sign up no for the desire. Drink. For There's, the Drake, they had no desire to fire off the coast of England, and they gentlemen. almost, they almost, yeah, they almost mutinied. Mutinied. We gentlemen, we're going to need the English coast. We're going to do what? Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> we're going where? We're going to uh, what? <laughs> in, in the immortal words of the Virgin Mary, come again? <laughs> I just so. Taking advantage of the shifting winds, Jones decides now that this is the right time to take another crack at Whitehaven. On April 23rd, 1778, he led several parties in small boats to spike the town's defensive cannons and set light to some 300 boats and ships anchored in the harbor. However, shifting winds and a strong ebb tide prevented the parties sent at the ships from actually reaching their target. They're just rowing and They had to nowhere. row for like five hours. And they went nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the party sent to light fires in the town after spiking the guns decided that instead of doing that, they were just stopped and got drunk at a pub. At yeah, the they, side. They, they just beat up everybody at a pub, stole all the booze, booze and just and ran just around drinking and like breaking windows. So but it was actually Jones was one of the guys that did yeah. spike the guns of the batteries, and it's a good yeah. fucking thing he did. Yes, he did. The short thing. So the, the men attempted to finally, in the, as dawn was breaking, he finally got them to attempt to set light to a collier. But a deserter slipped away from the party and alerted residents in the he harbor side. He was an Irishman. Yeah. All, the only reason that dude joined the crew was he was wanted he to home? go to go Ireland. Ireland. It was a free ride home. <laughs> <laughs> so he starts running around Whitehaven yelling, the pirate John, John Paul, Paul Jones. Jones is and calls him a pirate. And he knows the pirate John Paul Jones is here. Everybody wakes up and they gotta get back on the fucking boats <laughs> and row like hell. Yeah, they're forced to flee as every citizen comes out of their home yeah. with whatever they've the, got in their the, hand. A, the, the citizenry armed themselves and drove him back into the sea. Yeah. So they have to beat feet back to the ranger. Although, thankfully, as you as you mentioned, because they spiked the guns. Yeah, they end up getting back. Right. And, and it, because this kind of spilled the beans, the Drake. <laughs> the Drake had already run off. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, eh, you know, all the only time I'm seeing Steven from Braveheart. I told you it was my island. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't right. In the head. In the head. 
I just this this whole that's, thing. That's the thing is we're sitting between two very different Irish worlds here because you have the regular Irish and the Northern Irish. Like let's get the jolly old fiddle out and bust it over some fuckers' head. <laughs> exactly. So, this this whole voyage for him, pretty much up until the end, has a real strong Monty like Monty Python thing. Whoa, we're getting to the Monty yeah. Python yeah. show. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. here's what happens next. The next attempt is to raid St. Mary's Isle, which is kind of across a stretch of water from Joan's birthplace, hoping to capture and ransom the Earl of Selkirk. Ironically, a supporter... Not a bad plan. Ironically, he was a big supporter of American independence. Yeah. And, uh, in exchange for money and captured and doing a prisoner exchange for captured American sailors. It's a good plan, except for the fact that the Earl wasn't home. <laughs> He's gone on holiday. <laughs> so his, the Earl's wife entertains the officers... And decides to buy them off with a sack of silver. Yeah, she lets them well, in. Well, which no, is, they, it's they, pretty they smart. scared off. They scared off the gardeners. Yeah. By saying that they were an English press gang. Dang. Yeah. And then, it, well, and that's how that's how they found out he wasn't home. John Paul Jones, he wanted to go back to the ship. He was yeah. like, "Well, screw it. If they're not home, wait, the rest of the crew is going. We wait, came wait, all this wait, way. It was, they said, and to to Jones's credit, for as bastard as as he is, he said, okay, go up, get the silver, but nobody gets hurt. And Lady Selkirk shrewdly yeah. opened the doors, let him in, gave the silver. Otherwise, who knows what could happen? They could have grabbed she gave him. She gave him food and drink, too. Yeah. She was just like, well, yeah, See, that, here, that's here. pretty shrewd. And Jones actually later gave back the silver. Well, we're getting to that. So, uh, yeah. So they he Sorry. allows the crew to take a Didn't big to silver. Steal your thunder, man. He allows the crew to take a big silver platter, and the the, the crew of the ranger is paid off with a big sack of silver, which turned out to be a sack of coal with silver <laughs> coins on the top. <laughs> which I love. They're just like, oh shit, that's the a old lot. switcheroo. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> they they're pulling it out, and yeah, and as Aww. you mentioned. As you mentioned <laughs> <laughs> the big the, the big silver platter, uh, Jones bought it off of his men and eventually returned it to the Earl after the war. Yeah, and the Earl was still pissed off. Oh, I, yeah, I yeah. would be too. I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he was still pissed well, off. Well, I mean, his gardeners all quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we're not getting pressed into service. <laughs> oh, hey, the difference between a gardener and a press gang. Uh, yeah, yeah. Huh? yeah, I'm going to pull all them weeds. So, I hate pull weeds. So the Go next day, they sail back into the Irish Sea, and they end up encountering the Drake once again. Now, this time, they're meeting on an even footing. And the captain of the Drake has taken on several dozen soldiers with the intention of grappling and boarding the Ranger. The two vessels close for close combat, but Jones turned the more maneuverable Ranger and unleashed several broadsides before the Drake could return fire. And when she finally did, her four-pounder cannons were not very effective against Ranger's tough hull. Now, Jones, having received advanced knowledge of the extra soldiers on board the enemy vessel because he captured a scouting boat, <clears throat> excuse me, stayed close but never allowed her to grapple. And so after more than an hour of unequal exchanges of fire, in which the Drake's captain was killed by a musket ball to the head, and a rigging was reduced to tatters, the Drake's sailing master, the ranking officer left standing, surrendered by shouting and waving his hat as the colors had been shot away. Yeah, they didn't even have an ensign left. They had no, nothing. They had no flag. They had no ensign. It, the only thing that was holding up the, the mast were the ropes. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I mean, Jones did a pretty good job of this one. The yeah, ranger had the shit out of that. The thing. ranger had, I think, three killed, five wounded, and the Drake had five killed and twenty-five wounded. About a quarter of her crew. Thereabouts, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. 
And this was actually the first naval engagement of the war where a British warship had been captured in a roughly equal fight. And they had taken her in British waters as well. So this is another first that John Paul Jones has accomplished. Now the Drake is handed over to Jones' first lieutenant, Thomas Simpson, in spite of... But in spite of this triumph, there's going to be consequences. Because, spoiler alert, Jones was a bit of a dick. Yeah, Thomas Simpson was one of the most vocal critics. Mm-hmm. Of Jones, but Jones also saw him as the most competent sailor, and, well, and, and the fact that he wanted to get rid of him because he was a bit of a dick, and Simpson didn't like him. Yeah. So I mean, that had a lot to do with it. Yeah, it just yeah, everything got him away out. from me. <laughs> yeah. So on the return journey to Brest, stop it. The ships were separated as the Ranger just tears off, chasing another prize. Like it was towing the it was towing the Drake, and Jones just cuts the cable and takes <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, jo- yeah. Yeah, they, and, both, they were both like, well, fuck yeah. this. <laughs> and, and conflict ends up erupting between Jones and Simpson, although both vessels did arrive in Brest safely. Jones ordered a court-martial of Simpson and kept him detained aboard ship, having accused him of disobeying orders because Simpson didn't follow him. Yeah, what Simpson's defense was, because he wanted the hell out of there. Yeah. Right. Some stories say Simpson was the one to cut the rope. and was like, I'm, like, this is dumb. I'm out. I'm gone. Finally, we get rid of this asshole. And he... Uh, he said that there was just confusion in the orders. Yeah. And that seemed to be pretty satisfactory to everybody, and that was kind of the end of that one. Yeah. So, Jones's orders to Simpson's replacement, Lieutenant Elijah Hall, are simple. Quote, You are to put Lieutenant Simpson under arrest for disobedience of orders. You are to keep company with me and pay punctual attention to the signals delivered herewith for your government. Pretty direct. So... Unfortunately, there were not enough American officers present to convene a court-martial, and so Jones attempted to have Simpson transferred to a French prison ship, an action that led to a petition being signed by 77 members of the Rangers' crew in Simpson's defense and sent to Benjamin Franklin in Paris. And a similar document was signed by all of the Rangers and the Drake's petty and warrant officers. <laughs> so you have American and British sailors going, no, he was cool. No, no, don't don't listen to this. <laughs> don't listen to the asshole Scotsman. Yeah, 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 yeah that Scotsman's a dick. Oh, no, you talking about Tom? No, no Tom's good. Tom's good. <laughs> Fucking Tom? Get out of here. So in May, a letter from the Naval Committee back in America was received, acknowledging and passing the capture of the Drake while giving no praise to Jones, which must have just chapped his fucking hide. Oh, of course it did. And reprimanded him for his actions against Simpson. In a letter to Joseph Hughes, Jones wrote, quote, Why, alas, should my honor and my duty seem incompatible? Though this may appear a solecism, yet its reality affects me more than all of the other misfortunes of my life, some of them perhaps brought about by my own misconduct. This, I am sure, was not. I cannot think of quitting the service, especially while the liberties of America are unconfirmed. I must therefore look up to you as my patron and protector. Shall I take the liberty to add, as my kind friend and benefactor, the full dependence that you will do your utmost to set me right so as to to enable me to continue in your service? So. One star. (laughs) Please don't fire. Would not recommend. Translation. (laughs) Please don't fire me. (laughs) So Jones is forced to acquiesce to the will of the civilian government, and and this civilian control over military affairs is a sticking point that would lead to Jones' later desire to separate himself from the fledgling American Navy. So Simpson is released, he's given command of the Ranger, and he sails home to America. Jones, on the other hand, is beached again. At least that was until the lease of a ship to the Continental Government by a shipping magnate named Jacques Donatien Le Ray. 
Now, the ship had been laid down in 1765. She was a large East Indiaman that clocked in at a, almost 1,000 tons burthen. Her name was the Duke du Dorat, and although she wasn't particularly quick or agile, she had a quality that Jones was looking for. She was big. She's able to carry a crew of 380 and 42 cannons. She's well-armed, she's well-manned, and she has the men and firepower necessary for Jones to do what he wanted to do most, go after larger British ships. In honor of Benjamin Franklin, she's also given the new name Bonhomme Richard. And possibly because there is no way that any self-respecting American sailor would actually sail on a ship named Duke. (laughs) (laughs) So after after some growing pains, a squadron is formed with the Bonhomme Richard at the head, along with the fast and deadly 36-gun American frigate USS Alliance, the 32-gun French frigate Pallas, and the 14-gun French brigantine Vengeance. So spending two months with limited success cruising against the British in the Bay of Biscay and around the British Isles, in September of 1779, Jones finally found the target he was looking for. A convoy of nearly 50 merchant vessels had sailed from a large trade mission to the Baltic. It was under protection of the 44-gun frigate HMS Serapis and the 22-gun hired-armed vessel HMS Countess of Scarborough. On the 23rd of September, off of Flamborough Head on England's northeastern coast, these two forces finally make contact. Approaching the convoy from the south, Jones' squadron is intercepted by the two British ships around 6 p.m., trying to keep them away from the merchantmen. The Alliance just pulls off to the side. <laughs> and and now this, this kind of goes back to the beginning. Yeah. Like, whenever this flotilla went, uh, Landay, the captain of the Alliance... It was an American oh, ship guy. with a French captain, it too, was, a, was worth pointing out. It was bankrolled by the French, mm-hmm. so the French captains didn't give a fuck what John Paul Jones said. Nope. So periodically, as they're they're going around looking for targets, Lande just splits. Yeah, I mean, and they, they, were were they were missing him for like two weeks I mean, the before they was, ended up yeah. uh, to the convoy. He was gone for like two weeks, he just and they just back. ran into each other. It was like, oh, hey, hey, what's <laughs> up, guys? Hey, you're back. Hey, hey, what are you doing here? Well, and that's one of the things that it, it, I, I found that that's a big thing that it, it's kind of a running trail through John Paul Jones' career is that he kept getting command of people that were in other situations and really just didn't give a shit yeah. what he said. Yeah. You, you know, this was uh, okay, I'm your commander, but you know what? I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. He, he keeps ending up in situations where a rigid, defined command structure does not exist. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, they, there was a French privateer that kind of joined the flotilla. They weren't even on oh, their yeah, the way. They, right. as soon, yeah, as soon as they got underway, he was just like, nah. nah. And just like, they're watching him leave the board. He just turned. <laughs> he just went left. He's like, nah. So, the, <laughs> I don't know what happens. So the alliance, the, the alliance falls, falls off. So does the Countess of Scarborough. So now you have the Serapis facing three ships by herself. And the Serapis and the Bonhomme Richard pull up alongside each other and let loose a series of broadsides of pistol shot range. They're about 20 yards apart. And things didn't go the, the Richard's way at first, as two of the six 18-pounder cannons that Jones acquired at the last minute exploded, showering the lower decks with shrapnel and killing or wounding a score of men. And that precludes him from using the 18-pounders at all for that the rest of the battle. That is a tremendous amount of firepower. Mm-hmm. Like those, those are his... That's like if you're a boxer... And you you break your you you break your pinky, mm-hmm. and now you don't have quite as much zap on that big heavy right hand. Yeah, yeah, you don't have you, the, you don't have that right cross. Yeah, now you're just throwing jabs. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah, until it's... it's this is this is when it gets ugly. Yeah, so, ugly. So he deciding that he can't win a straight up gun battle without the use of his eighteen pounders, of which the Serapis had a lot. A lot. Uh, Jones decides to try and grapple the Serapis and board her, but the superior maneuver, maneuverability of the Serapis kept her out of reach for some time. Bear in mind, the Serapis is a purpose built warship. And it is state of the art. State it of the art. Brand new. Copper bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, it's going to be fast. The bomber shard is a repurposed up armed trading vessel. It's a, it's big. It's but a bathtub. Yeah. It's a right. tub. Yeah. And this is a fast, well armed. At this point, aside from like the cannons that they had on the deck, yeah. the guns that they had, like the swivel guns, it was probably exclusively eighteen pound guns. Uh, the, the the Serapis had 18-pounders, some 12-pounders, and some 9-pounders. Mainly, 18, main battery was 18-pounders. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And it probably had, I mean... It had a, si- it had a similar... About 50 guns. I, I, the, the numbers I saw, it had a similar number of guns to the Bonhomme Richard, but it, the weight of its broadside was 90% heavier. Good God. And oh, this oh is, my God. And, and this is the point... In my in my research for this podcast and my research with what I was talking about with my son Bobby, this is the point where I said, you know what, this really was one of the coolest naval moments in United States Navy history. Yeah, it, it, yeah. The United States Navy doesn't as get a we lot get of through the, the, Yeah, this is as we go through. This, this yeah. is the something Navy has really a lot yeah. of moments. But uh, you also got to figure this I don't think we've had about 18 months old. Yeah. I, I don't think we've had another moment in the naval service like this. Well, because this was also where kind we of were, a first. Where we were absolutely, completely outgunned. I mean, when you when you talk about Midway, when you talk about Pearl Harbor, Maybe when you some, talk about... We, there, there are great naval moments yeah. in the United States naval history. But it history, wasn't that much of a But mismatch. it wasn't this mismatch. And it was one-on-one. Yeah. I mean, this is really Mike Tyson versus Glass Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's maybe... The, the closest thing I can think of, and it's not even a close matchup like this, is uh, the Constitution and the Garrier Constitution against the Cyan right. and Eleven. Maybe the Monitor and the Merrimack? Maybe. But even no, that wasn't no, one-sided. No, no, that wasn't just, one-sided. It yeah, was they, just... It was I mean, two bad was, techniques. But, I mean, yeah. that was just... It was a moment. It was a defining moment. But, but yeah, like it, this it, was not not a matter of this being was cinematic. The way so, we yeah. were so you have the two flagships that are now in a close range slugging match. All the accompanying ships are just on the periphery, just kind of waiting for their moment to come in. Fi- they're firing a few shots at each other and retreating. They're kind of weaving in and out. They're waiting for the right moment to intervene. Finally, after an hour, the Serapis's jib boom gets caught in the Richard's mizzen rigging, and the two ships are finally locked together. But it only gets worse. Now, trying to take advantage of the situation, Jones begins to concentrate on clearing the Serapis's deck with musketry, grenades, and grape shot from his few remaining nine-pounders that hadn't been dismounted by this point by British cannon fire. All this time, the muzzles of the Serapis's main guns are touching the side of the Bonhomme Richard and firing just straight into her guts, and it's just wreaking havoc on the cannon decks. I mean, it is just sending splinters everywhere. It's acting like a giant shotgun. Every time you fire it, I and don't understand how they were even able to get a shot off uh, they did the Bonhomme Richard. And the reason I say that is because they, when, it, when it comes the to knowledge of when it comes to well, when it comes to knowledge of Canadex, one of the big pieces of the Canadex is be, 
the old, you know, Newton's law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So what you had on the cannon deck was on one post on the on on the forward end of the deck, you had a rope, and it tied through the cannons all the way aft to another to another post. And what that did was that kept, it, when, when those cannon would fire, basically what it would do is it would keep those cannon from blowing out the other side of the ship. Yeah. yeah. And one of the first things they take out, if you're firing on a cannon deck, is you take out that rope. So it's amazing to me that they were even able to fire cannon off at well, all and get I, those. At, at this point, the main battery of the Bon Richard is, is combat ineffective. It's not doing much at and it, all. It already kind of was before yeah. the battle right. even got to this point because he kept trying to board. But they were still and getting shot off. And he was getting out They were still getting shot Man, off. That's, you that's that's assuming, my I'm assuming you could probably rig up the ropes to individual. Or you just, I, I you just maybe it blows out the other end of the boat. you got to do something. Yeah. Right. So no, you, you got to throw a punch It's back. during this part of the fight that the Serapis' captain, Richard Pearson, cheekily asked Jones if he would like to strike his colors. And Jones supposedly gave that famous response. No, he didn't. Yeah, no, supposedly, it, no, this is all no according way. to folklore. No, no, no. According to folklore, the according, common story, this is where fake Jones says, I have not Wrong. yet begun to fight. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. But it should be noted no, no, that, no. that Pearson that, nailed his ensign to the hull of the boat. Just to let Jones know that I'm not taking it down. Yeah. Well, and now, game on, motherfucker. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> he well, knew he had him dead the, to rights. The official United States Navy history is that, you know, that he said, I have not yet begun to fight. He was a Scotsman. And I know how this conversation went. They were 30 feet away from each other. Pearson looks at him and he says, Do you strike, sir? Well, wasn't I said that John Paul Jones then pulls out his dick, helicopters it at Pearson and says, Strike this, you bastard. If he strikes his colors, he's done. He's That's done. it. Your boat is either sinking or you're getting executed. That's it. So what I said is, like, Why not? strike. <laughs> No, no, no! Like, I'm dead either way. So at least I'm gonna try. Yeah, I'm, I'm relatively sure the actual history read. Fuck no! <laughs> no. By this time, it's about eight thirty p.m. And if you think things are chaotic now, here, oh, here we go. Dying of the light. So here comes our boys. Eight thirty. Eight thirty p.m. The Alliance, in company with the Paulus, just sails past the unengaged side of the Serapis and tries to take the initiative to aid Jones by putting fire into the other side of the British ship. Now, her broadsides were terribly timed, so they're firing into these ships, and they do as much damage to the Bonhomme Richard, if not more damage to the Bonhomme Richard, as they do to the Seraphim. After three hours, dude pulls up and shoots John Paul Jones, and then... Fucks off again, and then just <laughs> away he goes. He again. Just back in, like just kind of folds back into the melee. Now, <laughs> now the Paulus actually does something well. It ends up engaging the Countess of Scarborough in a close-range gunnery duel, wreaks severe damage, and when the Alliance moved up alongside, Captain Piercy of the Countess struck his colors. Now, at the same time, according to Jones' official account of events, a sailor named William Hamilton. This is according to. Uh, Jones's account. Now, he shimmies out along the yard arm until he was over top of the Serapis's deck and drops a grenade. Mind you, these are the grenades with actual fuses you have to light. They look like miniature versions of that bomb from the yeah, classic Batman yeah. show. 
And until he's over top, he drops a grenade into a ready store of powder that was to make... It wasn't the, the first grenade. No, he kept trying. He missed no. a couple. How no, did you no, he, like? He, 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 <laughs> just like muscly. He's, he's sitting there. <laughs> Throw. <laughs> Motley. So, oh, God. We're, we're invoking yeah, Hanna-Barbera cards. And I know Jones had that conversation with him before it happened. Because only a Scotsman would. <laughs> hey, you! We let! Because it... All right, who's, who can claim? And, <laughs> and I'm glad you did this, Rob, because I, through all my research, I could not find the guy's name. Yeah. It was always... A sailor. Inter- yeah. A sailor. An enterprising sailor. An unnamed sailor. So the only thing I could think was... The this convers- guy. Yeah. This conversation. <laughs> hey... Get over here. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to climb that spa with a torch. It's, 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 it's like um, in, in a it's like Baldrick from Blackadder. <laughs> I have a cunning plan. <laughs> and, they, and you know the kid's like, um, yeah, well, what if you... You, you, you want if, me to do what now, sir? No, 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 no. What if the British see me? Well, then you'll fucking die. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, will I at least get a medal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give yeah, you yeah, a medal. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah well, he's we'll got a silver platter down there for Everything goes down. Got, the got, kid gets blown off a spar in the explosion. And Jones is standing there, and his quartermaster's there. And he's, oh, that was quite brave. What was his name? Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, so the grenade goes off in a ready store of powder and then sets off other ready stores in a chain reaction and explosion. While, while it's not powerful enough to destroy the Serapis, just does terrible damage on the gun decks. I mean, it basically shuts down the gun decks. It hits of all the powder charges. Yeah. Now, oh, that would be unpleasant. No, so it's a the good Pearson's thing. pulling them nails. <laughs> <laughs> good thing, too, because yep. the Bonhomme Richard is now so badly damaged that it said that many of the shots that the British were firing into her side were passing all the way through without touching anything. Yep, just went straight through. And she was taking on water below decks, requiring the Richard's officers to put the prisoners they had below decks from the British merchantmen they've seized yeah, to work loose. on the pumps, going, yeah. you want to stay alive, don't you? Yeah. Well, work the pumps. So, Alliance, by this point... Yeah, like, we don't want you to die either, so get get buckets. <laughs> and Let's at go. this point, back comes the Alliance. It's <laughs> 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 so, finally, the Alliance sets itself up to, to deliver raking fire on the Serapis, without doing as much damage to the Bonhomme Richard, and a boarding attempt at, by the Serapis was driven back with very heavy casualties. Finally, around 10.20 p.m., the Serapis's mainmast comes down. And it's a few minutes later that Captain Pearson, now outnumbered, outflanked, on fire, and having taken severe losses, finally, against the odds, strikes his colors, Crosses over to the Richard and delivers he did his it sword to himself. Jones. And he did it himself. He took, he yanked it off the yeah. nails himself. That's it. And that is, I do have respect for Captain And Pearson so did that. John Paul Jones. Yeah. yeah. He gave him his sword back. He gave him his sword back. Yeah. Now, at this point, the two main combatants were in, to put it lightly, in an absolute state. So aboard both ships. <laughs> lightly <yeah>. fucked. <laughs> <laughs> both ships, nearly half of each crew had become casualties, a total of about 300 men. Transferring casualties and prisoners from the Richard to the Serapis and attempting repairs, it was decided by about 2 p.m. the next afternoon that the Bonhomme Richard was too damaged and could not be saved. 
All men and supplies that could be salvaged were taken over to the English, captured English frigate, and avoiding other patrolling warships, the battle-weary squadron makes its way first to the Netherlands, and then finally back to France. The battle that finally gave Jones the fame he desired had ended, and with it the most notable victory of the Continental Navy, Pyrrhic in nature though it may have been. I mean, he just squeaked it. He really, really did. And I think that's part of the, uh, the, part of the greatness of the story is to remember that the, the Bowen and Richard sank. Yeah. That he had to sail to Amsterdam on the Serapis. Yeah. So the following year, Jones is knighted as a chevalier of the French court and is being denigrated at the same time in England, as we said, as a pirate. He spent most of the remainder of the war in France as a liaison between the French and the Continental Navy, but in 1782, in recognition of his victory, he was given command of the newly built 74-gun USS America, the first ship of the line of the Continental Navy. However, civilian control of the Navy interfered in its career yet again, and the America was instead given to the French as reparations for naval assets given earlier, as was the captured Serapis. By this point, the French had joined forces in America in force and had defeated the main body of British troops at Yorktown. The war is in its final phase and comes to an end the next year, and the United States of America was finally an independent nation. Did you side note exactly what happened to uh, Captain Pearson? Uh, no. He actually went back to England, and because he did not, because he put up a fight, fight basically, King George III knighted him. Mm-hmm. Word of this got back to John Paul Jones yep. in Paris, to which John Paul Jones responded, well, maybe I should defeat him again and make him an admiral. <laughs> That's pretty good. So Jones has put to work in France once more, arranging for the acquisition and distribution of overdue prize money to American sailors. However, eventually by 1787, this gig came to an end as well, and Jones denying requests to be a ranking commander in overseeing the uh, United States Revenues, uh, Revenue Cutter Service, which was the precursor of the U.S. Navy at this point. In, on uh, October, April 23rd, 1787, he officially enters the employ of Tsarina Catherine II of Russia, also known as Catherine the Great, also known as, hey, look at that lady. <laughs> Horse enthusiast. Horse enthusiast <laughs> Catherine, Catherine the Great. So Russia at this time was engaged with a savage... Equine Lothario. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> she banged a horse. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Russia at this time is engaged in a... We've sa- talked about this like four times in this podcast. <laughs> we've got a... Oh, let me continue. <laughs> we've, mentioned, we've mentioned the horse sex. We've mentioned it. We got it out of the way. I, I'm going to No, no, no. It's coming back. It's coming back because that's Jones's defense. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! So Russia at this time is engaged in a savage war with the Ottoman Empire, and tradi- which traditionally didn't have a lot of success with naval matters. Jones is given the position of rear admiral in the Russian Navy, even though <laughs> they already had admirals. Oh god! <laughs> I told you, you got two of us today. I know, I know. Hopelessly outnumbered. No, you think it would be double. The, the problem is with you idiots, it's log- logarithmic. So I'm looking at four times the trouble <laughs> yes, that one together. So, it, we're an exponent. Yep. <laughs> so the thing is, they put him under command of two guys named Grigory Potemkin and Karl Heinrich von Nassau Siegen, both of whom went. The fuck the are you doing? like, what the I'm, fuck am I going to do with this asshole? Hey, he's like, I got admirals. Hey, so what do they do? Like, I've got a navy and i got like, admirals. He's like, hey, John, I got some villages up yeah. the river. 
I'll let you sell so. it, okay? <laughs> Go nuts. We got fire. a time you want to do. It's, it's you like time lighting shit. shit on fire. We'll take care of that. It's our... It's, they're, they're Russian, but we don't care. They're peasants. So they're they, poor. They give Go them, nuts. So they give them a 24-gun ship to command, but they, every officer on board this ship is British. Former every British Navy. Single, every single to one. a man, they are British mercenaries who lost jobs yeah. after the American now, Revolution. And they're like, yeah. That would... <laughs> Now, admittedly, right. <laughs> now, admittedly, Potemkin and von Nassau-Siegen are both terrible admirals. They're absolutely shitty at what they do. And was they there also... anything that Gregor Potemkin was good at? I mean... The movie's pretty good. Battleship yeah. Potemkin's pretty good. That's He's technically the titular character. So... <laughs> the movie's dope. Yeah, he's seen it. <laughs> the movie is pretty dope. But he, so he has the run-ins with all these ex-naval officers, and he ends up, again, on the wrong side of Potemkin and von Nassau-Siegen. And he has no idea how to work court politics. They view him as a renegade, they were, and, and the officers under his command refuse to act on his orders. They won't... They, like, they just... They sit and cross their arms, and that's it. They just refuse to do anything. I think the term <laughs> we're looking for is a snit. Yeah, they just stop. <laughs> They're like, no. Mm-mm. So... Nah. So, Jones falls victim to these court intrigues, and he's recalled to St. Petersburg, ostensibly to be redeployed, and he ends up getting arrested and accused of raping a 12-year-old girl. Now, the Count de Segur, the French ambassador, and Jones's last friend in the Russian court, stepped in and conducted his own private investigation and convinced Potemkin that Nassau Zegan had manufactured the ac- accusations for his own purposes. Yeah, apparently this was not uncommon. Yeah, not well, see, uncommon at all. And, and see, that's what that, that's one of the things that I found very interesting about this is that he finally achieved the status of aristocracy that he wanted. And he got out-aristocrated. gutted by the fact that People resented aristocrats then and would accuse them of really, really horrible, horrid things. Mm-hmm. And so, the cats and the colonel and the silver spoon. You know what? Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> here's the thing. But still, it comes down to he did probably diddled a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, well, yeah, they, so, he, so he he's clear to the charges, but he admitted to prosecutors, and this defense is fucking golden, that he had, quote, often frolicked with the girl, quote, for a small cash payment and only denied that he had deprived her of her virginity. Great. Wow. Yeah, good move. Good, good yeah. move. See what happens? Good when you, move. When you, you fly too close to the sun, you just good did move. a 12-year-old. No, there's, Which goes back to although, he should have just side up to Moscow and said, you did a horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although interesting fact, after the accusation, Mister Red, the good interesting fact, interesting fact here though, after the God damn it, I told you we were gonna do it again. So I ab- warned your interesting ass. fact, after the accusations came out about John Paul Jones and this twelve-year-old girl, there were some photos taken of him in the mid to late nineties with Donald Trump. Oh no! Oh, Boom! Man. There it is. There we go. So in spite of all this, and with Bill Clinton. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and imagine who else is going to be on that list. Oh, oh yeah, imagine who else is going to be on that. List. I'm waiting for the apocalypse uh, because it's all falling in. Oh yeah, it's coming. Bill, be. do you want in on this? I've got a cigar. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> so 
in spite of all this, Jones is awarded the Order of St. Anne in 1788 for his service to the Russian Empire, but he, as soon as he gets it, he goes, okay, got the recognition, bye Russia, and he books it out of St. Petersburg. He's now pretty embittered. He ends up moving to Warsaw, Poland, where he spends a couple years trying to market himself to, to the employ of other navies, and nobody wants to hire his ass. So in seventeen ninety, diddles little kids. I, I, I'm not. Well, it's not even that. It's more that just it, it gets around that hey, this dude's a pain in the ass. Yeah, everything about this guy sucks. So in seventeen ninety, Jones made his way to Paris, still collecting a pension as a Russian rear admiral, and this is how he made his living at this point. Right. May I point out, mm-hmm. and published his memoirs as his health began to decline. He finally, at this point, finds his way back into state employ of the United States of America in June of 1792, when the U.S. government appoints him to be consul to the Day of Algiers in order to obtain the release of captives taken by the Barbary Corsairs, who we will talk about in the future. He never fulfilled this appointment, however, as on July 18th, 1792, 227 years ago today, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's a, that works. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Yeah, he was, I mean, he, he was, that was not scripted. Yeah, I he mean, was found lying. Yes, it was. He was found lying face down in his bed in his third floor Paris apartment at number 19, Rue de Tournon, dead of intestinal nephritis at the age of 45. He was buried at St. Louis Cemetery, about 20 yards from most of the graves of the French royal family. Because he was a Protestant. Again, he was a Protestant. Protestant. Uh, Again, continuing a very complicated relationship with nobility. Uh, That's not quite the end of John Paul Jones' story. So after his death, Jones' friends paid to have him mummified, not embalmed, mummified, and buried in a lead coffin. And in 1905, Jones' remains were tracked down by the U.S. Ambassador to France, General Horace Porter. They cut down an entire group of tenant apartments digging yeah. to look for yeah. him. They, they cut like an entire section of Paris It took a hundred years to find his body. Yeah, so Jones' remains are tracked down and they're exhumed, checking to make sure that it was indeed him, and it is. And there's actually a photo the, of the remains, of the mummified remains, and it's like, I don't know. And then I compared the photo to the to, uh, uh, a bust sculpture that was done of him. I'm like... Uh, Oh Who, yeah, that's it. it looks that a was hell that was well like the the thing the the thing that was funny about that was Houdin. I I, I don't know that they I'm, I'm not into French sculpture. Uh, Houdin no, was, was the, the guy's the, name. The yeah, Houdin. Uh, Houdin. Uh, he was very particular when he did a bust that to make sure that he had taken the measurements of the ears oh, yeah. and the he eyes and the nose. He was very thorough. So uh, a Houdin bust. Was it, it was basically oh, it was like it was like, as good it, as a it, life cast. Yeah, exactly. As good yeah, as a life cast. They were incredible. And they said when they opened they, when they opened the cask, they looked at him and and it looked like he was just asleep. Yeah. That he had for a hundred years he'd just been laying there asleep. He hadn't. Yeah. It, so Jones's body immediately is brought back to the U.S. aboard the cruiser USS Brooklyn, and he's welcomed back into port by a procession of eleven battleships and cruisers into Baltimore Harbor. Part of the Great White Fleet. Part of the Great White Fleet. On April 24th, 1906, his coffin was installed in Bancroft Hall at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, in a ceremony presided over by President Theodore Roosevelt. And seven years later, the coffin was reinterred in a magnificent bronze and marble sarcophagus in the Naval Academy Chapel where it remains today. And that's one of the funniest parts is that here it was, 110 years later, they finally bring him home to the United States, and you Still got to wait another seven years to get your final resting place. <laughs> get your place. final resting place. Like, hey, Hurry yeah, up and wait. Yeah, come, yeah. 
just like the Navy, <laughs> hurry up and wait. So let's talk about Jones. You come here just to just to wait in line. So let's talk about Jones's legacy for a second. So first, there's a letter written by Jones in 1791 called A Treatise on the Existing State of the French Navy, where he talks about the French Navy, but he manages to wedge in a lot of criticism of the size, operations, and nature of the Continental Navy to that point. Now, this letter made its way to the hands of the Secretary of War, Henry Knox, and to members of the Senate and House, and it actually heavily informs the Naval Act of 1794, which establishes the construction of six powerful frigates and many other warships, setting the tone that the U.S. would have and retain a Navy capable of projecting power far beyond its own shores. The USS Constitution, the USS United States... All those that run of ships is a are, as a direct result of the influence of John Paul Jones, even though he'd been dead for a couple years by this point. Now, four U.S. Navy ships have been named after him, including the current USS John Paul Jones, a powerful and advanced Arleigh Burke class destroyer based in Hawaii with the Pacific Fleet. DDG DDG fifty one, I believe. As a final salute, the town of Whitehaven in England officially pardoned John Paul Jones for his raid on the port in 1999. And in his honor, the United States Navy is given the freedom of the port of Whitehaven in perpetuity. Yeah, that's nice. You know what I think we should do? Take I it think, back! I think, I think every year... <laughs> never every, every, coming. Every, every year, we should go out, go over there, burn it down. <laughs> every single it's like year. a tradition like the 82nd Airborne sending guys up to the Netherlands to row across the ball. <laughs> Just go up and start lighting houses. Oh, <laughs> we, we still land guys in Normandy. <laughs> it's still so I, so my, no, so my my cousin Allison actually only lives about fifty miles from Whitehaven. So if we go to visit her, it's not that far. We could start a grand new tradition. I like it. We'll, we'll roll up, throw a couple of uti- or like artillery pieces, spike them into the sand. There's gonna be people out there on the, on the beach. Fuck their hair. Just <laughs> drunk. <laughs> Filthy. <laughs> oh, damn it. It's September 23rd, isn't it? Shit, 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 shit. shit. Oh, we're going to be cutting it close because I got plans for September 20th. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, so that's the story of John yeah. Paul Jones, guys. John Paul Jones is what happens whenever yeah. you... Whenever you just all your life you want to be a fancy lad. Oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> and then it's just everything falls apart. So, Which is the opposite yeah. of the story of the movie Cabin Boy, where he just was a fancy lad, and then he realized how great it was. After so yeah, any any final thoughts, fellas? Well, my hey, well, you know, it, you asked me at the beginning. You know, well, actually, Chris, you asked me, yeah, what did, did you know before? Change? Yeah, what changed? Um, I can boil it down to one sentence, and I've been saying this sentence for the last three weeks. Quick brown great jumped over the lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You, now, oh, you, you, put, you put me into the shining. Um, no, the, the, the sentence is this. Great sailor, badass sailor, father of the United States Navy, not a good dude. dude. Yeah, not a great guy. Not a great guy. As it turns out, not the best. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you keep saying father of the United States Navy. You're going to end up having to fight the ghost of John Barry, aren't you? <laughs> Lights are going to start yeah. flickering in here. Doors are slamming. Hey, 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 he's got a whole lot of boot camp instructors behind me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Before he gets to me. But the, but, but the whole thing is, is it, it, I will say this. Having read what I've read about his exploits, having read the actual seamanship... I do have to change my opinion. 
He is number two. Okay. He beats out Farragut. Hmm. Okay. I mean, obviously, again, Lord Nelson will always be Lord Nelson, but John Paul Jones made the list. Quick question before we wrap things up. Bit of a non sequitur, though. Does Thomas Cochran make his way onto your top five? No. Close, though? Close. He would make a top ten? Top ten. Fair. Top ten. Actually, tied at four and five, if I had to, you know, being a true sailor, I've got to say we're Dernitz. And Yamamoto. Mm. Well, Yamamoto was well. Dernitz because he promised he promised Hitler ten million tons of shipping in the first year. He provided fifty tons in the first six months. Yeah, yeah fifty million in six months. Or, yeah, fifty million tons in six months. And Yamamoto, he did what tactically couldn't be done. Yeah, and I mean, if there wasn't if there wasn't a pretty Pretty minor mistake. Yeah. Yamamoto it's, would, I mean, a, he still would be commanding the fleet. That war yeah. could have gone differently. It's a, it, 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 when, I, when I put that list together, I say great sailors, not great men. Right. No. Sure. <laughs> well, in that, in that always kind of the story of history, though, all these people who were lionized as these exemplar figures always end up having kind of kind of why we do what we do i mean that's us it's that well that's why it it is possible to be a great statesman a great human being and to be flawed yeah and i think that's one of the things that we need to understand and that's one of the things i've learned from john paul jones yeah he definitely falls into that category you can be very flawed and still do very great things sure so, guys, I think that's it for this week. Um, I loved it. It's a long episode. I know way longer than we normally do, but uh, it, a good story. And having Mike here, we clearly, I mean, you've got awesome. a lot of knowledge locked in there. We, we're definitely going to have to have you back, dude. Okay. I, I, I thank I you so much for the insight and Absolutely. for the knowledge and for your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, and it, for the at laughs this point, it's, you're technically our first bona fide expert. Yeah. I'm a sailor. Not only are you an expert, you are also a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. And yes, if you Absolutely. like what we do, you can go to www.patreon.com. And I ain't at that silly cabin boy level. <laughs> slash TRR pod to uh, donate one, uh, $1 a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, and $10,000 a month grand poobah levels. Uh, if you uh, want to follow what we do on social media, Chris? Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at TRRPod. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can hit us up at PodcastTRR. Uh, if you have any podcasts that you follow, please feel free to tag us in them. Absolutely. We, we always like to find new and interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just found the Assassinations podcast. Yep. Big fan Absolutely fascinating. Really, really good. Oh, can I, pl- on can I plug one? Yeah, sure. Please. Have you seen the Apollo 11 one? Uh, did what we heard or what we what we no. saw? Is this like a one-off? It's yeah. It's it's, it's a like four. A it's a four series on the 50th anniversary no. of Apollo 11. No. It's Apollo 11. What we saw. It's uh, I want to say Bill Middleton. Is the guy's name? You can get it on Google Podcast. Okay, cool. We'll link to that. Uh, look it up. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty important because it, important it just being we be, we're coming up on Saturday's the you know the fiftieth anniversary. Yep. Just you know, great history. So yeah, really big there. milestone. I mean, it's that is just so unbelievably cool and like done with le- and done with less computing power than the first generation of iPhone. Yep. Yeah, you yeah, said earlier, yeah, basically an app. Yeah, and it was just. This was a different era. Like Neil Armstrong pulled up in his Corvette. Yeah. 
Like it, that Corvette still exists. Like somebody bought it, figured out it was his through the title. Search. Have you ever read the speech they had prepared for Richard Nixon? Yeah, yeah. Richard, Richard Nixon oh, had. Yeah, yeah Richard Nixon had right. two two speeches. One for if they if it went good. One for if it went bad. That. Did you see the the moment? And I know we're all baseball fans, and I, I'm pretty sure you can still find it. Uh, I'll, if I find it on YouTube, I'll send it to you, and I, I'll link it here in the show notes. But uh, at Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. it goes dead silent. And then it just comes up in like the old LED boards. It were yeah. just like yellow light bulbs. They're on the moon. Mm-hmm. And everybody loses their yeah. fucking they minds. Go nuts. I, haven't awesome. seen, I haven't seen oh, it. I'm going to have to look so it up. Super cool. And it just awesome. says, they're on the moon. Oh, uh, that and the, um, the, the moment after the uh, no hitter when everyone was wearing the Tyler Skaggs jerseys and they all put the jerseys oh, on Jesus the moon. Oh, Jesus Christ, dude. Dude, I, I was having I, a I great had, day. So I, that, I, that broke that was, me, man. If anybody ever asked me, why I love baseball. I'm going to talk about that, that night. That moment. Show yeah. him that. His mom, so, his mom through the first pitch. Yeah. They pitched a combined no hitter. Combined no hitter. Oh, man. It was yeah. something special. So, it was so good. Yeah. So good. So that's it for this week, guys. Uh, join us next time. We're getting medieval on your ass. Because, oh, yeah. Because yeah, we're actually going to be talking about Bad King John. Yeah, this is a good one. So, this is a fun yeah. one. We're going to look forward to that. We're getting. Uh, into a little more like overtly yeah. bad people, <laughs> and, and this is actually going to be one where it's going to be it's going to be interesting uh, parsing the history from the bullshit. It's it's going to be pretty difficult. We're going to have to do a lot of because reading medieval chroniclers is a uh, it's a treat. <laughs> it's a real treat. So yeah, thank you, Michael or Ned, for joining us today. It was oh, absolutely great having you, man. Absolutely. I can't wait for the absolutely. next one. Oh, neither can I. Neither can I. So, I'll start now. I'll start studying up on my Middle English. <laughs> <laughs> Bone up on your chaucer, dude. It's going to get weird. So, yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. You know where to find us. Please subscribe, rate, review. Follow us on social media. We'll yeah, catch we'll, you next time. We'll see you on Facebook, or we'll see you at Area 51. Yep. Clapping them alien cheeks. <laughs> Let's see them aliens. Can <laughs> so, we do a live show from Area 51? Uh, we need probably, probably do a live show from somewhere around here first. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, until we do that, um, you know what you have to do. Mike, what do they have to do? Hold fast. Yep, he's right. Hold fast, everybody. Later.